Chapters 7 and 8 of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Book 1, Chapter 7 Sayings of Wise Men. A dialogue between the lady and her maid, and a panegyric, or rather satire, on the passion of love, in the sublime style. It is the observation of some ancient sage, whose name I have forgot, that passions operate differently on the human mind, as diseases on the body, in proportion to the strength or weakness soundness or rottenness of the one and the other we hope therefore a judicious reader will give himself some pains to observe what we have so greatly laboured to describe the different operations of this passion of love in the gentle and cultivated mind of the lady booby from those which it affected in the less polished and coarser disposition of Mrs. Slipslop. Another philosopher, whose name also at present escapes my memory, hath somewhere said that resolutions taken in the absence of the beloved object are very apt to vanish in its presence, on both which wise sayings the following chapter may serve as a comment. No sooner had Joseph left the room, in the manner we have before related, than the lady, enraged at her disappointment, began to reflect with severity on her conduct. Her love was now changed to disdain, which pride assisted to torment her. She despised herself for the meanness of her passion, and Joseph for its ill success. However, she had now got the better of it, in her own opinion, and determined immediately to dismiss the object, after much tossing and turning in her bed, and many soliloquies, which, if we had no better matter for our reader, we would give him, she at last rung the bell, as above mentioned, and was presently attended by Mrs. Slipslop, who was not much better pleased with Joseph, than the lady herself. "'Slipslop,' said Lady Booby, "'when did you see Joseph?' The poor woman was so surprised at the unexpected sound of his name at so critical a time that she had the greatest difficulty to conceal the confusion she was under from her mistress, whom she answered, nevertheless, with pretty good confidence, though not entirely void of fear of suspicion, that she had not seen him that morning. "'I am afraid,' said Lady Booby, "'he is a wild young fellow.' "'That he is,' said Slipslop, "'and a wicked one, too. "'To my knowledge he games, drinks, "'swears, and fights eternally. "'Besides, he is horribly indicted to wenching.' "'Aye,' said the lady, "'I never heard that of him.' "'Oh, madam,' answered the other, "'he is so lewd a rascal "'that if your ladyship keeps him much longer "'you will not have one virgin in your house "'except myself. "'And yet 
I can't conceive what the wenches see in him to be so foolishly fond as they are. In my eyes he is as ugly a scarecrow as I ever upheld. Nay, said the lady, the boy is well enough. La, ma'am, cries Slipslop, I think him the ragmaticallest fellow in the family. Sure, Slipslop, says she, you are mistaken, but which of the women do you most suspect? Madam, says Slipslop, there is Betty the chambermaid, I am almost convicted, is with child by him. Ay, says the lady, then pray pay her her wages instantly. I will keep no such sluts in my family, and as for Joseph, you may discard him too. Would your ladyship have him paid off immediately? cries Slipslop, for perhaps when Betty is gone he may mend, and really the boy is a good servant, and a strong, healthy, luscious boy enough. This morning, answered the lady with some vehemence, I wish, madam, cries Slipslop, your ladyship would be so good as to try him a little longer. I will not have my commands disputed, said the lady. Sure, you are not fond of him yourself. I, madam, cries Slipslop, reddening, if not blushing, I should be sorry to think your ladyship had any reason to respect me of fondness for a fellow, and, if it be your pleasure, I shall fulfil it with as much reluctance as possible. As little, I suppose you mean, said the lady, and so about it instantly. Mrs. Slipslop went out, and the lady had scarce taken two turns before she fell to knocking and ringing with great violence. Slipslop, who did not travel post-haste, soon returned, and was countermanded as to Joseph, but ordered to send Betty about her business without delay. She went out a second time with much greater alacrity than before, when the lady began immediately to accuse herself of want of resolution, and to apprehend the return of her affection, with its pernicious consequences. She therefore applied herself again to the bell, and re-summoned Mrs. Slipslop into her presence, who again returned, and was told by her mistress that she had considered better of the matter, and was absolutely resolved to turn away Joseph, which she ordered her to do immediately. Slipslop, who knew the violence of her lady's temper, and would not venture her place for any Adonis or Hercules in the universe, left her a third time, which she had no sooner done than the little god Cupid, fearing he had not yet done the lady's business, took a fresh arrow with the sharpest point out of his quiver, and shot it directly into her heart, in other and plainer language, the lady's passion got the better of her reason. She called back Slipslop once more, and told her she had resolved to see the boy, 
and examine him herself. Therefore bid her send him up. This wavering in her mistress's temper probably put something into the waiting gentlewoman's head, not necessary to mention, to the sagacious reader. Lady Booby was going to call her back again, but could not prevail with herself. The next consideration, therefore, was how she should behave to Joseph when he came in. She resolved to preserve all the dignity of the woman of fashion to her servant, and to indulge herself in this last view of Joseph, for that she was most certainly resolved it should be, at his own expense, by first insulting, and then discarding him. O oh, love, what monstrous tricks dost thou play with thy votaries of both sexes! How dost thou deceive them, and make them deceive themselves? Their follies are thy delight, their sighs make thee laugh, and their pangs are thy merriment. Not the great rich, who turns men into monkeys, wheelbarrows, and whatever else best humours his fancy, hath so strangely metamorphosed the human shape, nor the great cyber, who confounds all number, gender, and breaks through every rule of grammar at his will, hath so distorted the English language as thou dost metamorphose and distort the human senses. Thou puttest out our eyes, stoppest up our ears, and takest away the power of our nostrils, so that we can neither see the largest object, hear the loudest noise, nor smell the most poignant perfume. Again, when thou pleasest, thou canst make a molehill appear as a mountain, a Jew's harp sound like a trumpet, and a daisy smell like a violet. Thou canst make cowardice brave, avarice generous, pride humble, and cruelty tender-hearted. In short, thou turnest the heart of man inside out, as a juggler doth a petticoat, and bringest whatsoever pleaseth thee out from it. If there be any one who doubts all this, let him read the next chapter. CHAPTER Eight, IN WHICH, AFTER SOME VERY FINE WRITING, THE HISTORY GOES ON, AND RELATES THE INTERVIEW BETWEEN THE LADY AND JOSEPH, WHERE THE LATTER HATH SET AN EXAMPLE WHICH WE DESPAIR OF SEEING FOLLOWED BY HIS SEX IN THIS VICIOUS AGE. NOW THE RAKE HESPERUS HAD CALLED FOR HIS BREECHES, AND HAVING WELL RUBBED HIS DROWSY EYES, prepared to dress himself for all night, by whose example his brother rakes on earth likewise leave those beds in which they had slept away the day. Now Thetis, the good housewife, began to put on the pot, in order to regale the good man Phoebus after his daily labours were over. In vulgar language, it was in the evening, when Joseph attended his lady's orders. But, 
as it becomes us to preserve the character of this lady, who is the heroine of our tale, and as we have naturally a wonderful tenderness for that beautiful part of the human species called the fair sex. Before we discover too much of her frailty to our reader, it will be proper to give him a lively idea of the vast temptation which overcame all the efforts of a modest and virtuous mind, and then we humbly hope his good nature will rather pity than condemn the imperfection of human virtue. Nay, the ladies themselves will, we hope, be induced by considering the uncommon variety of charms which united in this young man's person to bridle their rampant passion for chastity, and be at least as mild as their violent modesty and virtue will permit them, in censuring the conduct of a woman who, perhaps, was in her own disposition as chaste as those pure and sanctified virgins who, after a life innocently spent in the gaieties of the town, begin, about fifty, to attend twice per diem at the polite churches and chapels to return thanks for the grace which preserved them formerly amongst bows from temptations perhaps less powerful than what now attacked the Lady Booby. Mr. Joseph Andrews was now in the one-and-twentieth year of his age. He was of the highest degree of middle stature. His limbs were put together with great elegance and no less strength, and his legs and thighs were formed in the exactest proportion. His shoulders were broad and brawny, but yet his arm hung so easily that he had all the symptoms of strength without the least clumsiness. His hair was of a nut-brown color, and was displayed in wanton ringlets down his back. His forehead was high, his eyes dark, and as full of sweetness as of fire. His nose a little inclined to the Roman. His teeth were white and even, his lips full, red, and soft. His beard was only rough on his chin and upper lip, but his cheeks, in which his blood glowed, were overspread with a thick down. His countenance had a tenderness, joined with a sensibility inexpressible. Add to this the most perfect neatness in his dress, and an air which, to those who have not seen many noblemen, would give an idea of nobility. Such was the person who now appeared before the lady. She viewed him some time in silence, and twice or thrice before she spake, changed her mind as to the manner in which she should begin. At length she said to him, Joseph, I am sorry to hear such complaints against you. I am told you behave so rudely to the maids that they cannot do their business in quiet. I mean those who are not wicked enough to hearken to your solicitations. As to others, they may, perhaps, 
not call you rude, for there are wicked sluts who make one ashamed of one's own sex, and are as ready to admit any nauseous familiarity as fellows to offer it. Nay, there are such in my family, but they shall not stay in it. That impudent trollop, who is with child by you, is discharged by this time. As a person who is struck through the heart with a thunderbolt looks extremely surprised, nay, and perhaps is so, too, thus the poor Joseph received the false accusation of his mistress. He blushed, and looked confounded, which she misinterpreted to be symptoms of his guilt, and thus went on. Come hither, Joseph. Another mistress might discard you for these offences, but I have a compassion for your youth. And if I could be certain you would be no more guilty, consider, child, laying her hand carelessly upon his, you are a handsome young fellow, and might do better. You might make your fortune. Madam, said Joseph, I do assure your ladyship, I don't know whether any maid in the house is man or woman. Oh, fie, Joseph, answered the lady, don't commit another crime in denying the truth. I could pardon the first, but I hate a liar. Madam, cries Joseph, I hope your ladyship will not be offended at my asserting my innocence, for, by all that is sacred, I have never offered more than kissing. Kissing? said the lady, with great discomposure of countenance, and more redness in her cheeks than anger in her eyes. Do you call that no crime? Kissing, Joseph, is a prologue to a play. Can I believe a young fellow of your age and complexion will be content with kissing? No, Joseph, there is no woman who grants that, but will grant more. And I am deceived greatly in you, if you would not put her closely to it. What would you think, Joseph, if I admitted you to kiss me? Joseph replied he would sooner die than have any such thought. And yet, Joseph, returned she, ladies have admitted their footmen to such familiarities, and footmen, I confess to you, much less deserving them, fellows without half your charms, for such might almost excuse the crime. Tell me, therefore, Joseph, if I should admit you to such freedom, what would you think of me? Tell me freely. Madam, said Joseph, I should think your ladyship condescended a great deal below yourself. Phew, says she, that I am to answer to myself. But would not you insist on more? Would you be contented with a kiss? Would not your inclinations be 
all on fire, rather, by such a favour. Madam, said Joseph, if they were, I hope I should be able to control them, without suffering them to get the better of my virtue. You have heard, reader, poets talk of the statue of surprise, and you have heard likewise, or else you have heard very little, how surprise made one of the sons of Croesus speak, though he was dumb. You have seen the faces in the eighteen-penny gallery, when, through the trap-door to soft or no music, Mr. Bridgewater, Mr. William Mills, or some other of ghostly appearance, hath ascended, with a face all pale with powder, and a shirt all bloody with ribbons. But from none of these, nor from Phidias or Praxiteles, if they should return to life, no, not from the inimitable pencil of my friend Hogarth, could you receive such an idea of surprise as would have entered in at your eyes had they beheld the lady booby when those last words issued out from the lips of Joseph. Your virtue, said the lady, recovering after a silence of two minutes, I shall never survive it. Your virtue, intolerable confidence, have you the assurance to pretend that when a lady demeans herself to throw aside the rules of decency in order to honour you with the highest favour in her power, your virtue should resist her inclination? That when she had conquered her own virtue, you should find an obstruction in yours? Madam, said Joseph, I can't see why her having no virtue should be a reason against my having any, or why, because I am a man, or because I am poor, my virtue must be subservient to her pleasures. I am out of patience, cries the lady. Did ever mortal hear of a man's virtue? Did ever the greatest or the gravest men pretend to any of this kind? Will magistrates who punish lewdness, or parsons who preach against it, make any scruple of committing it? And can a boy, a stripling, have the confidence to talk of his virtue? Madam, says Joseph, that boy is the brother of Pamela, and would be ashamed that the chastity of his family, which is preserved in her, should be stained in him. If there are such men as your ladyship mentions, I am sorry for it, and I wish they had an opportunity of reading over those letters which my father hath sent me of my sister Pamela's. Nor do I doubt but such an example would amend them. You impudent villain, cries the lady in a rage, do you insult me with the follies of my relation, who hath exposed himself all over the country upon your sister's account? A little vixen, whom I have always wondered my late Lady Booby ever kept in her house. Sirrah, get out of my sight!' 
and prepare to set out this night, for I will order you your wages immediately, and you shall be stripped and turned away. Madam, says Joseph, I am sorry I have offended your ladyship. I am sure I never intended it. Yes, sirrah, cries she, you have had the vanity to misconstrue the little innocent freedom I took in order to try whether what I had heard was true. Oh, my conscience, you have had the assurance to imagine I was fond of you myself. Joseph answered he had only spoke out of tenderness for his virtue, at which words she flew into a violent passion, and refusing to hear more, ordered him instantly to leave the room. He was no sooner gone than she burst forth into the following exclamation, Whither dost this violent passion hurry us? What meannesses do we submit to from its impulse? Wisely we resist its first and least approaches, for it is then only we can assure ourselves the victory. No woman could ever safely say, So far only I will go. Have I not exposed myself to the refusal of my footman? I cannot bear the reflection. Upon which she applied herself to the bell, and rung it with infinite more violence than was necessary the faithful slipslop attending near at hand. To say the truth, she had conceived a suspicion at her last interview with her mistress, and had waited ever since in the antechamber, having carefully applied her ears to the keyhole during the whole time that the preceding conversation passed between Joseph and the lady. End of Book 1, Chapter 7 and 8 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California For LibriVox